From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. The bail system, when it incarcerates folks who do not have the money and do not have the resources, is it's a it's the huge it's a huge driver of convictions and pleas. Because if you're in jail, you can't afford a bond, you can't afford to pay it, so you're stuck in jail. Are you more likely to sit there for a year or are you more likely to enter a, a, a guilty plea to get out? And this is especially the case with minor offenses. Welcome back to the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. On today's show, Innocence Clinic Director Craig Trochino unpacks the Illinois Pretrial Fairness Act. Morning, Craig. Morning. Hey, thanks for coming back to The Explainer. Oh, thanks for having me back. I'm glad to be back. So let's talk about bail reform as Illinois just became the first state to abolish cash bail. What are the pros? What are the cons? Well, um, first, it's important to to really understand when bail is in play. Um, Bail's in play pre-trial. That's why it's called pre-trial bail, pre-trial cash bail. But that actually means that people who are on bail or in jail, not being able to make bail, have not been convicted of anything yet, right? So what the cash bail system does is it perpetuates a scheme of incarcerating people based on wealth or more importantly, lack of wealth. Because if you cannot afford bail, you cannot get out pre-trial. If you can, you will. So the folks that are in jail uh, and I'm using jail as opposed to prison. Prisons are for people who have been convicted and sentenced. So right. we're talking only about jail now. Uh, but if you're in jail with a bail, with a bond po- you know, set for you and you stay in jail, that means you cannot, you do not have the resources to meet that obligation. And therefore you're, you're in jail because of your lack of wealth. So if you don't have cash bail and you want to make sure people come back to uh, for their appearance, which is sort of what the whole reason about bail is. So how is that part of the equation being satisfied or well, we're just letting people go? I'm I'm not convinced that the only reason people come back for their trial appointments is because of a, of a bail obligation, right? Because the data on people who are ROR released on own recognizance or given other some sort of uh, pretrial release short of bail show up very, very regularly. Um, so it's not the money that makes them show up. It's the obligation to the court that makes them show up. And I think the vast, vast majority of uh, the criminally accused uh, do abide by that. Um, one of the problems with the bail system when it incarcerates folks who do not have the money and do not have the resources is it's a it's the huge it's a huge driver of convictions and pleas. Because if you're in jail, you can't afford a bond, you can't afford to pay it, so you're stuck in jail. Are you more likely to sit there for a year or are you more likely to enter a a, a guilty plea to get out? And this is especially the case with minor offenses. Um, And it brings to mind the case that I'm sure uh, a lot of the listeners have heard of. And if they haven't, they need to check it out. It's the case of Khalif Bowder. Khalif was an 18-year-old young man in uh, in New York who was wrongfully accused of stealing a backpack. They sent him pre-trial to Rikers Island. His bond, I think, was like $500. And he didn't have the money to make it. He sat in Rikers Island without being convicted of anything for three years. The vast majority of it 
in solitary confinement. He suffered abuse from the guards. He suffered abuse from fellow inmates. He finally, after three years, the state dismissed the charges against him. He got home and within a few months hanged himself in his mother's house. The pros of the Illinois law talked about. Are there any downsides to that? The downside is for the system perpetuating itself. Uh, The downside is not being able to force people into guilty pleas and convictions that they wouldn't otherwise do. And and some of the data bears that out. Uh, We're talking about just local jails. There are in in 2020, there were 514,000 people in the United States in local jails. 427,000 of them were pre-trial, had not been convicted of anything. Right. So that's a huge portion of all the people in local and county jails that are there without being convicted. Uh, And and when you look at the whole picture, right, if you take in federal cases too, out of the one point nine people in prison in the United States, about a half a million of them are pretrial. And that's just wrong because we shouldn't be sentencing people on an accusation for months, sometimes years. And in the, in the case of Khalif Browder, three years and ultimately, you know, unfortunately death. Go back. I think you missed a word. You said 1.9. I'm assuming you meant 1.9 million. million. Yeah. Yes. Did okay. I? Well, um, I'm, no, just so we straighten that out. <laughs> no, 1.9 million. There's only 1.9 people. In One point. <laughs> um, I assume that there's people that are against this because for monetary reasons. Well, it's for, for yes, for monetary reasons. Like jails are making money per inmate. Correct. Well, bail bondsmen, you're sort of taking a piece out of their business. Bail bondsmen make money in this particular way. Let's say let's keep the math simple because math's not my strong suit. That's why I went to law school. <laughs> let's say the, the bail amount is $10,000. You could if you have $10,000 liquid, you can post that into the court registry and it stays there. And when you meet your obligations, you get your $10,000 back. Most people don't have $10,000 liquid. So they go to a bail bondsman and they give the bail bondsman 10% of that. And the bail bondsman posts the entire $10,000. And when it's over, the bondsman keeps the 10%, right? You don't get any, you don't get any of that back. So yes, it's a money-making scheme for the bonds people uh, you know, in, in this trade. It's also a way to, like I said, uh, encourage convictions and pleas, which is also a money-making scenario because then you've got court costs and you've got fines and you've got probationary costs and so forth. Local jails are generally not run by for-profit um, prison systems uh, like you know Geo Group and some of the other ones, mm-hmm. uh, but those pre-trial pleas might end up with prison sentences and then they go. And so we have the for-profit prison scenario that's, you know, there's a reason why there's 1.9 million <laughs> people in prison in the United States. I didn't mean to chuckle over that, but I was chuckling over forgetting the million in the, right. in the previous sentence. Um, uh, and the proliferation of that has kind of gone in line with, there are other reasons, of course, but the proliferation of, of mass incarceration is, has, has tracked with the for-profit prison industry. Okay. Um, so the Illinois Pretrial Fairness Act also clarifies that everyone is eligible for pretrial release, therefore placing the burden of the, on the government to argue for detention. How much difference is that than what everybody else is playing with? I, I think that's a good, it's a good scenario that they set up in Illinois, um, because the bail system has become so ubiquitous in the criminal legal system um, that it's sort of the default. 
uh, in many jurisdictions, like the like here in Miami-Dade County, there's a list of standard bonds for offenses mm-hmm. that the judge that the judges have. It's on the, the any judge who's doing bond hearings has the, what the standard bond is. If they don't know it, they'll say corrections. What's the standard bond on this? Because the corrections, the the, um, the the Department of Corrections has it, and and so that becomes the default. You know, the idea that there is going to be a bond is is the default. And plus, everybody has seen a TV show or a movie where the protagonist gets arrested for something dumb, and then the next scene is the poor guy sitting in jail by himself, you know, either by himself or in a crazy holding cell. And then the, the officer goes, Jones, you posted. Right. And then he walks out in the morning and there's, you know, his loved one or somebody, you know, who bonded him out. So right. it's just it's become this fabric of the criminal justice system. Um, and it doesn't have to be. It it really doesn't have to be. It 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 is because it has been. But that's not a way to proceed with an enlightened criminal legal system. We're going to do it because we always have. So have other states and cities enacted bail reform either like Illinois or in other ways? Illinois is the, the only state that has completely abolished it. Uh, but um, Nebraska, Indiana, New York, New Jersey, uh, New Mexico and Kentucky have all played in this space and, and altered pretrial bail to some degree. I can't let you go without asking you about white judges. A recent analysis by Bloomberg Law found that out of 94 federal district courts, 25 have never had a non-white judge, and more than half of those were in non-Southern states. How do we get here? How do we make the judiciary and these courts more closely mirror the population they serve? Well, several reasons. First, elections matter. So vote. Uh, you know, they, they, they matter for federal uh, appointments they matter for state appointments. Some states have gubernatorial appointments uh, for for judges. Some states have elections for judges. We sort of have a hybrid here. Uh, trial judges are elected. If there's a vacancy, they're appointed. If there's no election, then they have to stand for an election. The appellate court judges are appointed and presumed to be retained. And there's a retention vote later. Uh, other states like Wisconsin just straight up vote for everybody. I think Pennsylvania does it the same way. But it all comes down to a vote. Um, so votes matter. Elections matter for the makeup of the judiciary. Second, um, you know, this this clerkship uh, pipeline shouldn't be a, th- a thing because it limits drastically limits the pool of people who are who would be qualified jurists and qualified judges to to serve. If we only look to and historically, we've only looked to clerkships and people who have represented the government in their in their practice years before becoming a judge, whether it's at, uh, you know, uh, a state attorney's office or the Department of Justice or, you know, in some well in some realm representing the government. There are thousands and thousands of public defenders, legal aid lawyers, civil rights attorneys, public interest lawyers who are supremely qualified uh, and would love to serve as judges, but they don't get looked at. Um, you know, it, it's it's not why it happens. I'll, I'll leave to, to other people to speculate, but um, I will point out in the history of the United States, there's only been two people who have ever served as defense lawyers on the United States Supreme Court. Thorogood Marshall and Justice Jackson. Mm-hmm. Justice Jackson is the only justice who's ever been a public defender. That's extraordinary to me. Absolutely extraordinary. I mean, you know, uh, you know, Gideon versus Wainwright is over 50 years old. There's got to be the, the fact that that's that's the case is just shocking to me. Um, and, and and having. Not only uh, a diverse makeup of the courts, you know, uh, people of color, women, uh, th- that's step one, but also a diverse background. 
if we only if we only choose judges from this narrow this narrow stream of candidates, we miss out on a lot. And what we miss out on is perspective. And that perspective leads to justice. Uh, and that perspective will combat absurd rulings and absurdities that the criminal law, especially in criminal law, has developed. For instance, there's this thing called EDPA, which is the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, and it deals with post-conviction. It's become so absurd that last summer, not this summer, the summer past, uh, the United States Supreme Court issued a case called Shin versus Ramirez. And in that, they ruled that a death penalty uh, defendant who was appointed a manifestly and in, 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 in documented ineffective lawyer at trial was then appointed a manifestly ineffective lawyer on post-conviction. And when it got to the United States Supreme Court, they said the ineffectiveness that was done in post-conviction was his fault. This is a lawyer that the government forced on him who was unqualified and it was his fault. That's how absurd the, you know, some of the, some of the legal rulings have gotten uh, on top of yeah. that. I mean, and from my own experience mm-hmm. years ago, I litigated a case, a death penalty case for four years to the 11th circuit twice on the existence of a staple. That's the look I usually get when I say this, when I say this, but it's true. That's how absurd it is. Now, if you have somebody who's been a public defender or been a defense lawyer or been a public interest lawyer or a civil rights lawyer, they'll come at that and see it for the absurdity that it is uh, instead of, you know, Wait, rewind a staple, a staple. Fill that out a little more. Do we have the time? Well, quickly. Okay. Basically it came down to when, when a, a state petition is filed, it, there has to be an affirmation from the defendant on it. And all the statute says it needs to be appended. Doesn't say where, doesn't say how, when it got filed originally, the affirmation was page one on top. It's usually the bottom page and the state clerk's office struck it because it wasn't appended. So when we got to federal court on it, the state argued it wasn't appended. So it wasn't a timely and authorized filing. So our time period was blown. We first got up to the 11th circuit and the 11th circuit said, no, no, you need to send it back for another hearing. Uh, and then we had another hearing and the judge said, no, it's still it's still wrong. And went back to the 11th circuit uh, and the 11th circuit said, no, 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 you're timely. It was there. Let's let's go on. But that was four years of my work, four years of the state's work, four years of the court's work that cost a lot of money and literally over a state. Anything in closing? Yeah, I, I would just like to say that uh, I, I think, you know, the, the 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 bail issue is very important. One, you can you can tell how uh, how well it's being done by the pushback you get from the system. And the pushback, anytime somebody talks about bail reform, there's immediate and substantial pushback. On the issue of the judges, it, you know, the, the bench should reflect America. Um, and the fact that it doesn't is one of the great judicial justice-based tragedies uh, of our lifetime. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us for The Explainer and a whole new season of Explaining. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at theexplainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's show is brought to you by Miami Law's Joint Degree Programs, which offer a wide range of options at the law school and throughout the university's graduate schools. 
For more information, visit www.miami.law.edu.